Section 16 of Historic Waterways 600 Miles of Canoeing Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers by Reuben Goldthwaites. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. Historic Waterways 600 Miles of Canoeing Down the Rock, Fox, and Wisconsin Rivers by Reuben Goldthwaites. The Fox River. Fifth Letter. The Bay Settlement. Green Bay, Wisconsin, June thirteenth, eighteen eighty seven. My dear W, we had a quiet Sunday at Little Kikana. Being a delightful day, we went with our entertainers to the country church, a mile or two back across the fields, and whiled away the rest of the time in strolling through the woods and gossiping with the farmers about the crops and the government improvement. Fertile themes. It appears that this diminutive hamlet of four or five houses anticipates a boom, and there is some feverish anxiety as to how much village lots ought to bring as a starter when the rush actually opens. A syndicate has purchased the long-abandoned water power, and it is whispered that the paper mills are to be erected, with cottages for operatives and all that sort of thing. Then the church and the depot will have to be brought into town, the proprietor of the crossroads grocery, now out on the country road, will be erecting a brick block by the riverside. Somebody will be starting a daily paper, printed from stereotype plates imported from Oshkosh or Chicago, and a summer resort hotel, with a magnetic spring, will doubtlessly cap the climax of village greatness. I shall look with interest on reports from the little Kikana boom. It was nine o'clock this morning before we dipped paddle and bore down to the lock gates. The good-natured tender dropped us through with much alacrity. The river gradually widens, and here and there the high rolling banks recede for some distance, and marshes and bayous, excellent hunting grounds, border the stream. A half mile below the lock we noticed a roughly built hut, open at front, such as would quarter a pig in the shanty outskirts of a great city. It looked lonesome on the edge of a wide bog with no other sign of habitation, either human or animal, in the watery landscape. Curiosity impelled us to stop. Crossing a plank which rested one end on a snag and the other on a stone in front of the three-sided structure, we peered in. A bundle of rags lay in one corner of the floor of loosely laid boards. In another was a heap of clamshells, the contents of which had doubtless been cooked over a little fire which still smoldered in a neighboring clump of reeds. The odors were noisome, and a foot-rise of water would have swamped out the dweller in this strange abode. We at once took it for granted that this was either the home of an Indian or a tramp. Just as we were leaving, however, a frosty, dirty, but apparently good-tempered fisherman came rowing up and claimed the cabin as his home. He said that he spent the greater part of the year in this filthy hole, hunting or fishing according to the season. In the winter he boarded up the front, leaving a hole to crawl out of, and banked the hut with reeds and muck. Wrightstown was his market, and he managed to scratch, he said, by being economical. I asked him how much it cost him in cash to exist in the state which was but slightly removed from the condition of our ancestral cave-dwellers. He thought that with twenty-five dollars in cash he could manage to scratch finely for an entire year, and have, besides, a week off with the boys, in other words, one prolonged drinking bout, at Wrightstown. He complained, however, that he seldom received money, being mainly put off with barter. The poor fellow, evidently something of a simpleton, is probably the victim of sharp practice occasionally. As we paddled away from the singular character, the doctor said that he had a novel-writing friend, given to the sensational, to whom he would like to introduce the wild fisherman of Little Kakana. He thought there was material for a romance here, particularly if it could be proved, as was quite possible, that the hut-man was the lost heir of a British dukedom. 
but the sight of another and a stranger romance is but half a mile farther down. The river there suddenly broadens into a basin fully half a mile in width. To the east the banks are quite abrupt. The westward shore is a gentle grass-grown slope stretching up beyond a charming little bay formed by a spit of meadow. Near the sandy beach of this bay a country highway passes, winding in and out and up and down, as it follows the river and the bases of the knolls. Above this, and commanding delightful glimpses of forest and stream, and bayou and prairie, a goodly hillock is crowned, some seventy-five feet above the water's edge, with a dark, unpainted, time-worn, moss-grown house, part log and part frame, set in a deep tangle of lilacs and crabs. The quaint old structure is of the simple pioneer pattern, a story and a half, with gables on the north and south ends of the main part, and a small transverse wing to the rear, with connecting rooms. The ancient picket gate creaks on its one rusty hinge. The front door has the appearance of being nailed up, and across its frame a dozen fat spiders, mostly successful of fly-fishers, has stretched their gluey nets. The path, once leading thither, is now o'ergrown with grass and lilacs, while in the surrounding snarl of weeds and popular suckers are seen the blossoming remnants of peonies and a few old-fashioned garden shrubs. The ground is historic. The house is an ancient landmark. It was the old home of Eleazar Williams, in his day Episcopal missionary and pretender to the throne of France. Williams was the reputed son of a mixed-blood couple of the Mohawk Band of Indians. In his early life, he claimed to have been born in the vicinity of Montreal in 1792. A bright youth, he was educated for the ministry of the Protestant Episcopal Church and sent as a missionary in 1816 to 1817 to the Oneida Indians, then located in Oneida County, New York. During the War of 1812 he had been employed as a spy by the American authorities to trace the movements of British troops in Canada. Williams, from the first, was engaged in intrigues among the New York Indians, and was the originator of the movement which resulted, in 1822, in the purchase by the War Department of a large strip of land from the Menomonees and Winnebagoes along the lower Fox River, and the removal hither of several of the New York bands accompanied by the scheming priest but the result was jealousy between the newcomers and the original tribes. With sixteen years of confusion and turmoil, during which Congress was frequently engaged in settling the squabbles that arose, William's original idea was said, by those who knew him best, to be the total subjugation of the whole Green Bay country, and the establishment of an Indian government of which he was to be sole dictator. But his purpose failed. He came to be recognized as an unscrupulous fellow, and the majority of the whites and Indians on the lower fox, as well as his clerical brethren, regarded him with contempt. In 1853, Williams, baffled in every other field of notoriety which he had worked, suddenly posed before the American public as Louis the Seventeenth, hereditary sovereign of France. Upon the downfall of the Bourbons in 1792, you will remember that Louis the Sixteenth and his queen Marie Antoinette were beheaded, while their son, the Dauphin Louis, an imbecile child of eight, was cast into the Temple Tower by the revolutionists. It is officially recorded that after an imprisonment of two years the dolphin died in the tower and was buried, but the story was started and popularly believed that the real dolphin had been abducted by royalists and another child cunningly substituted to die there in the dolphin's place. The story went that the dolphin had been sent to America and all traces of him lost, thus giving any adventurer of the requisite age and sufficiently obscure birth opportunity to seek such honor as might be gained in claiming identity with the escaped prisoner. Williams was too young by eight years to be the Dauphin. He was clearly of Indian extraction, a fair type of the half-breed in color, form, and feature. But he succeeded in deceiving a good number of people, 
including several leading doctors in his church, while an Episcopal clergyman named John H. Hansen attempted, in two articles in Putnam's magazine in 1853, and afterwards in an elaborate book, The Lost Prince, to prove conclusively to the world that Williams was indeed the son of the executed monarch. While those who really knew Williams treated his claims as fraudulent, and his dusky father and mother protested under oath that Eleazar was their son, and every allegation of Williams in the premises had been often exposed as false, there were still many who believed in him. The excitement attracted attention in France. One or two royalists came over to see Williams, but left disappointed, and Louis-Philippe sent him a present of some finely bound books, believing him to be the innocent victim of a delusion. Williams died in 1858, keeping up his absurd pretensions to the last. It was in this house near Little Kakana that Williams lived for so many years, managing and preaching to his scattered flock of immigrant Indians, and forever seeking some sort of especially profitable employment, such as accompanying tribal delegations to Washington, or acting as special commissioner at government payments. In the earliest days, the house was situated in the spit of meadow I have previously spoken of, but when the dam at Depier raised the water, the frame was carried to this higher position. William's wife, an octoroon whose portrait shows her to have been a thick-set, stolid sort of woman, died here a year ago, and is buried hard by. The present occupants of the house are Mary Garrity, an Indian woman of sixty-five years, and her half-breed daughter, Josephine Penny, who in turn has an infant child of two. Mary was reared by the Williamses, and told us many a curious story of life at the agency, as she called it, during the time when Mr. Williams and Ma were alive. Josephine, who confided to me that she was thirty years old, was regularly adopted by Mrs. Williams, for whose memory both women seemed to have a very strong respect. What little personal property was left by the old woman goes to her grandchildren, intelligent and well-educated Oshkosh citizens. But Josephine has the sandy farm of sixty-five acres. She took me into the attic to exhibit such relics of the alleged dolphin as had not been disposed of by the administrator of the estate. There were a hundred or two mice-eaten volumes, mainly theological and school textbooks, several old volumes of sermons, for a laser is said to have considered it better taste in him to copy a discourse from an approved authority than to endeavor to compose one that would not satisfy him half as well. A box full of manuscript odds and ends, chiefly letters, Indian glossaries, and copied sermons, two or three leather-bound trunks, a copper tea-kettle used by him upon his long boat journeys, and a pair of antiquated brass candlesticks. Then we descended to the old orchard. Mary pointed out the spot, a rod or two south of the dwelling, where Williams had his library and mission office in a log-house that has long since been removed for firewood. In this cabin, which had floor dimensions of fifteen by twenty feet, Williams met his Indian friends and transacted business with them. Mary, in her querulous tone, said that in those days the place abounded with Indians night and day, and as they always expected to be fed, she had her hands full attending to their wants. There wa'n't no peace at all, sir, so long as Mr. Williams were here. When he were gone, there wa'n't so many of them, and we got a rest which I were mighty thankful for. Garrulous Mary, in her moccasins and blanket skirt, with a complexion like brown parchment and as wrinkled, almost a full blood herself, has lived so long apart from her people that she appears to have forgotten her race, and inveighed right vigorously against the unthrifty and beggarly habits of the aborigines. I hate them pesky Indians, she cried in a burst of righteous indignation, and then turned to croon over Josephine's baby, as veritable a little Indian boy as I ever met with in a forest, wigwam. He's a fine feller, isn't he? she cried, as she chucked her grandson under the chin. Some say he looks like Mr. Williams, sir. 
The doctor, who was a judge of babies, declared in a professional tone that that did not admit of contradiction, that the infant was, indeed, a fine specimen of humanity. And thus we left the two women in a most contented frame of mind, and descended to the beach, bearing with us Josephine's parting salute shout from the garden gate, "'Call again whene'er you pass this way.' De Piers five miles below. The banks are bold as far as there, but beyond they flatten out into gently sloping meadows, varied here and there by the reapproach of a high ridge on the eastern shore. The western getting to be quite marshy by the time Fort Howard is reached. At De Pere are the first rapids of the Fox, the fall being about twelve feet. From the earliest period recorded by the French explorers, there was a polyglot Indian settlement upon the portage trail, and in December 1669, the Jesuit missionary Alouez established St. Francis Xavier Mission here, the locality being henceforth styled Rapide de Perez, as was from this station that Alouez, Tablan, Jolet, and Marquette started upon their memorable canoe voyages up the Fox, in search of the benighted heathen and the Mississippi River. For over a century, Rapide de Perez was a prominent landmark in northwestern history. The De Pierre of today is a solid-looking town with an iron furnace, sawmills, and other industries, and after a long period of stagnation is experiencing a healthy business revival. Unable to find the tender at this last lock on our course, we portage after the manner of old-time canoeists, and set out upon the home stretch of six miles. Green Bay, upon the eastern bank, and Fort Howard upon the western, were well in view, and it being not past two o'clock in the afternoon of a cool and somewhat cloudy day, we allowed the current to be our chief propeller, only now and then using the paddles to keep our bark well in the main current. The many pretty residences of South Green Bay, including the ruins of Navarino, Astor, and Shantytown, are situated well up on the attractive sloping ridge, but the land soon drops to an almost swampy level, upon which the greater portion of the business quarter is built. Opposite Fort Howard, with her mills and coal docks, skirts a wide-spreading bog much of the flat, sleepy old town being built on a foundation of sawmill offal. Historically, both sides of the river may be practically treated as the old Bay Settlement, for two and a half centuries one of the most conspicuous outposts of American civilization. Here came savage-trained Nicolette, exploring agent of Champlain, in 1634, when Plymouth Colony was still in swaddling clothes. It was the day when the China Sea was supposed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of the Great Lakes. Nicolette had heard that at Green Bay, he would meet a strange people, who had come from beyond a great water to the west. He was therefore prepared to meet a colony of Chinamen or Japanese, if indeed Green Bay were not the Orient itself. His mistake was a natural one. The strange people were Winnebago Indians, a branch of the Dakota or Sioux, a distinct race from the Algonkins. They forced themselves across the Mississippi River, up the Wisconsin, and down the Fox to Green Bay, entering the Algonkin territory like a wedge, and forever after maintaining their foothold upon this interlocked water highway. The Great Water, supposed by Nicolette to mean the China Sea, was the Mississippi River, beyond which barrier the Dakota race held full sway. As he approached, one of his Huron guides was sent forward to herald his coming. Landing near the mouth of the river, he attired himself in a gorgeous damask gown, decorated with gaily colored birds and flowers, expecting to meet mandarins who would be similarly dressed. A horde of four or five thousand naked savages greeted him. He advanced, discharging the pistols which he held in either hand, and women and children fled in terror from the Manitou who carried with him lightning and thunder. 
the mouth of the fox was always a favorite rallying point for the savages of this section of the northwest and many a notable council has been held here between tribes of painted redmen and jesuits traders explorers and military officers being the gateway of one of the two great routes to the mississippi many notable exploring and military expeditions have rested here and french english and americans in turn have maintained forts to protect the interests of territorial possession and the fur trade here it was that a white man first set foot on wisconsin soil and here also in seventeen forty five the de langlades first permanent settlers of the badger state reared their log cabins and initiated a semblance of white man civilization green bay now hoary with age has had an eventful though not stirring history for a hundred years she was a distributing point for the fur trade the descendants of the de langlades the grignons and other colonists of nearly a century and a half standing are still on the spot and the gossip of the hour among the voyagers and old traders still left among us is of john jacob astor ramsey crooks robert stewart major twiggs and other characters of the early years of our century whose names are well known to frontier history the creole quarter of this ancient town shiftless and improvident to-day as it always has been lives in an atmosphere hazy with poetic glamour revelling in the recollection of a once festive half-savage life when the courier de bois and the engage were in the ascendancy at this forest outpost and the fur trade the be-all and end-all of commercial enterprise your voyageur scratching a painful living for a hybrid brood from his meagre potato patch bemoans the day when yankee progressiveness damned the fox for yankee sawmills into whose insatiable maws were swept the forests of his youth and remembers not but the sweets of his early calling among his boon companions the denizens of the wilderness in shanty town astor and navarino there yet remain many dwellings and trading warehouses of the olden time unpainted gaunt poverty-stricken but with their hand-hewed skeletons of oak still intact beneath the rags of a century's decay a hundred years is a period quite long enough in our land to warrant the brand of antiquity although a mere nothing in the prolonged career of the old world in the rapidly developing west a hundred years and less mark the gap between a primeval wilderness and a complete civilization time like space is after all but comparative in these hundred years the northwest has developed from nothing to everything it is as great a period judging by results as ten centuries in europe perhaps fifteen america is said to have no history on the contrary it has the most romantic of histories but it has lived faster and crowded more and greater deeds into the past hundred years than slow-growing europe in the past ten hundred the american centenarian of to-day is older by far than the fabled methuselah green bay classic in her shanty ruins has been somewhat halting in her advance for the creoles hamper progressiveness but as the voyagers and their immediate progeny gradually pass away the community creeps out from the shadow of the past and asserts itself the ancient town appears to be taking on a new and healthy growth in strange contrast to the severe and battered architecture of frontier times socially green bay is delightful there are many old families whose founders were engaged in superintending the fur trade and transportation lines or holding government office civil or military at the wilderness post this element well educated and reared in comfort gives a tone of dignified old-school hospitality to the best society it is the knickerbocker colony of the bay settlement at four o'clock we pushed into a canal in front of the fort howard railway depot and half an hour later had crossed the bridge and were registered at a green bay hotel the doctor called home to resume the humdrum of his hospital life will leave for the south to-morrow noon 
I shall remain here for a week reposing in the shades of antiquity. End of section 16